everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. And it's at the top of the page of zbooks.co at the link, my new book. And it's going to help you with all of your self-publishing needs. Okay, back to that podcast. Welcome to ZBook Successful Authors Podcast. And today I have the manager of The Matrix. He just wrote a book called IT Strategy. And his name is Jim Maholic. Welcome, Jim. How are you? I'm real good. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Eric. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's great to talk to you. I was just telling my friends how I, I got this book, and it's huge. It's like a canon. It's going to be, I think it's really going to be the benchmark for IT uh, people for the next 20-whatever years. And uh, you really make what most people might think of as boring, IT, you really make it understandable and interesting. So I just want to say congratulations on your awesome book. Well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. So um, let's get into that. I mean, we're not going to be able to cover the whole book, obviously. Like I said, it's, it's a canon. There's books within books here. And it, how many words is it? Uh, not counting the appendices, it's about 125,000. It's like 600 pages. Nice. Nice. And uh, so, okay, why did you write it? Uh, this is actually my second book. Uh, and after I finished my first one, which was similar, uh, it was a book on IT for uh, managers who had to build business cases for their initiatives. Why is this project worth doing uh, was the first book. Um, it was called Business Cases That Mean Business. Uh, mm -hmm. After that book was done, I had a lot of leftover, let's just call it notes and comments that didn't fit the first book. I looked at those and thought, gee, I wonder if these have any value. And as I kind of reviewed those leftover remnants, I realized, oh, this is actually the beginnings of an IT strategy book. And so <laughs> that's kind of what led to this is, uh, well, let's put all these notes together and let's fill this out and make the IT strategy book. And so that's how this came to be. Did you notice maybe, um, now this has happened to me and many other authors before, that your second book is sometimes better because you're in the flow and you, oh, I don't know. I think this book is much better for a couple of reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, I've got much more experience writing. Um, I had a much better editor for this book than I had for the first one. Uh, mm -hmm. and so I think the combination of my skills improving and having a, a much better editor made this book much better, I think. Cool. How long did it take to write? Well, I work full time and I did not put myself on any kind of a deadline. Mm -hmm. And so it took... I mean, I pretty much started this probably within a few months after I finished the first one. So roughly six years, mm -hmm. but it wasn't six years of writing every single day. There would be periods where I wouldn't write at all just due to the demands of my other job. So well, um, it, it's a deep subject though. So I could imagine taking 12 years on it. Um, you know, um, I'm going to skip around in the questions. I sent you some questions, but um, because I remember reading in your book that you should start from the 
seer, S-E-A-R, and use that as a filter for when you're reading the whole book. So tell us about S-E-A-R, please. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, many people, when they think of IT strategy, their first thought is, what technology do I need? What's mm -hmm. going to be the right environment for my you know, technological footprint? And to me, that's not where you should start. S-E-A-R is basically how executives view projects, on which projects to fund, which ones not to fund. And S-E-A-R is an acronym um, standing for sales, expenses, assets, and risk. How do I increase sales, mm -hmm. cut expenses, optimize assets, or mitigate risk? And so that's the lens through which most executives evaluate proposals that come across their desk. So I constantly remind the readers of this book that even though we do discuss technology and other peripheral concepts, you must always remember that your idea has to either increase sales, cut costs, optimize assets, or mitigate risk if you want executives to approve the funding for your initiative. Right. Um, I can't help but go on a little tangent there because you have a lot of experience there. And, and so uh, what appeals to me is you got you got some depth for the techies like me, but you've also got the higher level stuff for the people that want to be a CIO and you teach them how to talk to executives one level up. Is that correct? I would say that's the goal. Yes. Cool. And so tell us about CIO and, and talking to executives. Well, uh, <laughs> many CIOs have come through a path of uh, come through a technical path. Um, they were maybe very good programmers or developers, good project managers, um, and then as their um, capabilities or responsibilities grew over time, they were given more and more responsibility until now they're in charge of the, the whole tech environment of their enterprise company or government agency or whatever. Um, and good for them because that's obviously what they need to do. Mm -hmm. But in that role of being the senior most person in that space, you have to also adopt an executive mindset. And that's what I've tried to do to coach them, those that may not have that grounding mm -hmm. um, in what it means to interact with executives is help them see any idea you have, you're going to require funding for this idea most likely. Mm -hmm. um, and unless you can fund this initiative through your own budget, you need the support of other executives to you know, kind of in essence, join their budget with yours to move this forward you have to know how to talk that executive language. Yeah. So that was kind of the issue for me was to make sure that my technical counterparts knew exactly how to present this to executives in a way that was meaningful. Yeah. And without mentioning employers and stuff, you have over 10 years of, of uh, experience uh, doing just this, right? Correct. Actually over 20 years. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. Um, so, and, and S-E-A-R is like one of the first things they got to realize. I, I, yeah, it's important that they, I, I really started the book off by saying you have to understand how executives think. Yeah. And I mean non-IT executives. Mm -hmm. um, in my work that I've done for, like I said, 20 years, um, I'm constantly presenting to uh, approval boards, whether it's the actual board of directors or a committee chosen by senior executives to evaluate this technology initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, it usually, it's usually made up of multiple uh, backgrounds. You got, usually have engineering, uh, technology, sales, accounting, oftentimes human resources, yeah. um, various disciplines within the company who have representatives on this approval board. And you mm -hmm. have to persuade them 
again, not just how cool the technology is, but how this technology that you want to buy and implement, how does it help the business really gain competitive advantage? Um, how do I use this technology to improve the customer experience, for example? How do I use this technology to um, drive costs out of maybe my manufacturing process so now I'm more, more agile in the manufacturing process, more nimble against my mm -hmm. competitors? Um, and that's the kind of language that sells large initiatives, not just this is really cool technology. It may be cool technology, mm. but executives are not going to buy it solely for the cool factor. They're going to buy it because it drives some real, real need for the business. Yeah, this is a cool part of your book. Um, actually, not that deep into IT, but you have a whole chapter just about presentations. And what struck me was, um, so chapter 35, delivering right. the formal presentation, the eight P's of presentation. And this, I, I've seen this, uh, well, you know, there's all sorts of um, um, mod modems and stuff. Right. But I, I am coming from the book angle now, and other, um, yeah, like, you know, uh, TED Talks and Steve Jobs or convincing the people in Washington, D.C. And no, really trendy right now is to incorporate it into a story and hit emotional buttons. And what I saw in your book was none of that. It was mostly logic, logical for presentations. And I'm, I was wondering, is that really true? Or are you guys trying to hit more emotional buttons now? Well, I think you have to do both. I think, um, there, yeah, you know, we talk a lot, at least here in this country, about left brain, right brain, those who yet yeah. appeal to emotion and those people who respond best to logic. Right. And I think you have to, you have to have both boxes checked in your presentation to be effective. Mm -hmm. I think you have to tell a story. Um, I advocate in the book um, that you have to assume that some approvers whom you're going to present to uh, have really no idea why they're why they're there. Why are they talking to you today? Yeah. Uh, they were told that yeah, you're going to talk about some IT initiative. That may be all they know, <laughs> and so you have to walk them through. Here are the challenges that we face today. We've evaluated our options, and this particular suite of technology or portfolio solves that problem. And we think in solving that problem, we deliver these benefits to the business: cutting costs, or well, obviously increasing sales, cutting costs or cutting expenses, optimizing mm -hmm. assets, and mitigating risk. And so the story has to unfold that way. Um, I put the presentation uh, chapter in there, again, mm -hmm. because a lot of the technologists who become CIOs, uh, particularly in smaller companies, they've not had to interact with um, executives much at all. Yeah. Uh, they've probably been shielded by the prior CIO who did that. <laughs> and so while many CIOs that I meet with in larger companies are very good at this, um, Several of the CIOs, I'd say many of the CIOs in smaller companies, just haven't been faced with that executive presentation expectation. Hmm. And so I wanted to present to them, this is what you have to put together so that your presentation wins the day. Um, this is what it takes to succeed. So do you have, I mean, you don't have to go over all of the eight Ps, but do you have a, a, a tip specifically for IT dudes that need to learn this? <sighs> I, I think the specific tip is, you have to guard yourself against being overly technical mm -hmm. um, and you have to make sure you have addressed the key executive points. Um, in essence, for many technologists, you have to get quite a bit outside your comfort zone to be successful in pre presenting uh, these presentations because you're mm -hmm. asking for money. Uh, yeah. And usually some of these initiatives, you're asking for millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. and so you have to get comfortable both asking for it 
and you have to be comfortable in presenting. I believe these benefits we're talking about to the business. I believe these benefits are are plausible. They're they're realistic, uh, and so I think that's key. I, I think part of the one of the preparation steps in that eight P's uh, mm-hmm. would have been going back to whatever business area I'm talking about. If my if my initiative say is to improve the customer experience. Uh, I'm ultimately going to want to drive increased sales because my customer experience is better for my customers, uh, yeah. better online presence or whatever I might be doing, maybe a mobile enabled online presence or something. Mm-hmm. I need to have the, I need to have the um, collaboration and co-sponsorship of that head of that customer area, whether it's the VP of sales or VP of marketing. I need them to say, this is the initiative we want to do. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't be driving an initiative that conflicts with what they want. Uh, so there's a lot of collaboration that goes on, particularly when we're talking a transformative IT strategy, mm-hmm. you're going to be dealing with multiple business areas and you really need to be locked in with those people that what you're delivering delivers what they're looking for as far as benefits. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a, a kind of related question I had. What's your number one tip for the wannabe C-level CIOs? So I have to back up for, for some of our listeners. CIO is chief information officer, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's universally the acronym for that. And except for the investment industry where, you know, the, the, the large stockbroker CIO is chief investment officer, which is ah. nothing related to technology. No. Um, every other business CIO means what you said, chief information officer. Right. So, okay. So what's your number one tip for them? Not about presentations, but, you know, aspiring C-level CIOs. Well, I think the, to be a CIO and to be really effective, whether you are one today or you look to be one in the future, mm-hmm. is understanding your business. I don't mean technology. I mean, if, if your business is, um, uh, say you're a food uh, manufacturer and you prepare canned foods, for example, you should know all about the canned food business. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the big challenges in your supply chain of getting raw ingredients uh, and keeping them fresh before you can them? Uh, what are the challenges in logistics and getting that those canned products distributed to to grocery stores. Uh, who are your biggest competitors and why do they succeed against you uh, in the cases that they might? Um, I think an effective CIO should strive to be the most knowledgeable executive in the business about the whole business. Hmm. Because in the information space, yeah. the, in the IT area, mm-hmm. the CIO touches every piece of that business. Hmm. Sales, marketing, manufacturing, logistics, distribution, accounting, uh, human resources, recruiting, all those things. Um, the technology touches all those aspects. And a, a, a good CIO is knowledgeable about how his area or her area drives success for the whole business to be competitive. So that's, that's, my, that's my advice to CIOs is be, yeah. yes, you have to know the technology. That's like obvious in your job description. But I think too many CIOs stop there yeah. uh, and they don't do their best to be fully rounded in knowing their full business. That, that's a, a tough nugget. Um, I remember, well, I don't remember it was before our time, but after World War II, I don't know who it was, you know, the, the, um, the modus operandi was a good manager doesn't need to know what they're making. They just need to put the right people in place to make it. And that's totally, totally different nowadays, isn't it? Especially for a CIO. Well, yes and no. I would say um, certainly I don't have to know as CIO, I don't have to actually know the intricacies of how we convert, say, these 
raw vegetables and, and raw <laughs> protein products into our canned products. Um, I don't need to know all that goes into that, but I need to understand enough so that I can speak conversantly about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm, uh, if I'm a CIO of a large organization, I'm going to have a pretty good sized staff and I'm not going to be intimate with every piece of our business, sales, marketing, manufacturing, logistics, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but I need to understand what those things do and how, how we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace so I can enable additional differentiation to give us competitive advantage. Yeah, that is, that's a mouthful. <laughs> well, that's why they get paid a lot of money at that level, right? Exactly. So I'm, I'm sorry, I have to digress a little bit. Uh, your book is number one, new release. It was, yes, actually okay. in several categories. Nice, awesome, congratulations. I well, appreciate that. I'll, I'll yeah. give credit to Paul and his team. I thought they did a really good job in their marketing. Yeah. Um, and that helped, uh, helped launch a, a successful campaign, and yep. that was the outcome for us. Well, I'm, like I said, I'm jumping around in the questions, but while we're there, uh, tell us about your launch. Anything remarkable or something new you learned or the process? Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't do any formal marketing for my first book, and I regretted that I didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, with this book coming out, I wanted to take advantage of what marketing opportunities I had. And I had a limited budget. I'm not a, I'm not a company. I'm just an individual author. Yeah. And so I had to choose where I spent my money wisely. And so after doing some research, I found Paul's organization and thought, you know, these guys probably know what they're doing. They seem mm -hmm. to know what they're doing. And uh, to his credit, he delivered on what he promised, that he could get yeah. my book to to be an Amazon number one bestseller, and he did. Awesome. So I was very, yeah. very, very uh, happy with that outcome. I interviewed him a couple shows ago, and uh, yeah, very, very good guy, very good company, and I'm going to interview him again. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I think, I think those, you know, those of your, your listeners who uh, are about to launch a book, Paul's company is certainly worth considering. They do a good job. Yeah, wow, that's great. And well, uh, the, what do you call it? Actions speak louder than the words. So, well, um, yeah. The, actual, the outcome I got was the outcome I wanted, which is I wanted to be able to legitimately say I was a number one best-selling yeah. author, and I am. Excellent. So. Congratulations again. But oh, now, thank you. let's talk about vexations, one of my favorite <laughs> chapters or sections in your book. Yeah, I'm not going to vex you. But what's a bigger <laughs> challenge, emerging tech or government regulations? Yeah, I thought about that. Um, my, my thought on that... <laughs> Gonna jump. There you go. Pardon me for for looking around. You had it. You had a comment in there, and I wanted to make sure I got it just right. No problem. No problem. I will jump around haphazardly. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah. Um. So your question. Why don't you ask your question again? What What's a bigger challenge uh, for well us? Emerging technology or government regulations? That's a great question. Um. As at least as I address it in the book, mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of an IT strategy and what's going to be, be the difference between success and failure of executing this full transformative strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think your question's valid, but I don't think that uh, I'm going to question the kind of the premise of it. I think the biggest challenge is people. Hmm. Um, I think technology I mean, yes, new technology, IoT and blockchain, these things are exciting and, and you have to have smart people who can implement that and, and make it work. But that isn't a big deal. 
you can find people who can make it work and you can do that. Um, but getting people, leading people where they don't want to go mm-hmm. and getting them to do it eagerly, that's the challenge of a successful transformation. Yeah. Um, and so in almost any of these big transformations that I've been a part of, we're asking people to fundamentally change how they do their jobs. Um, we're going to replace your old system that you've been using for 20 years with this new system that's going to be, you know, fresh and new and have all this new technology capability today. Mm-hmm. And some people are eager to do that. And some people were very happy with what they had and not so eager. And as the strategist and ultimately project leader, I've got to get them all going in the same direction with me. To your point about government regulations, uh, yes, that's certainly a vexation. And I think the challenge for a good, a good CIO or whoever is leading the transformation has to be some thought that tomorrow my world could turn upside down, mm-hmm. um, whether it's GDPR or IRF, IFRS regulations or whatever it could be, or at the local level, uh, there could be some uh, reporting requirement that I now have to do that I didn't last week. Um, but there's always things that could come up and, and be a complete headache to a CIO. Um, you know, a large weather event, a tornado or a hurricane can, could flood your factory. Um, you could have a strike from the workers. You could have any number of things that all of a sudden today, I have to pivot and address this when I wasn't even thinking about it yesterday. Uh, and I, that's the kind of the purpose of the whole vexations chapter is that you are, you have to anticipate that there will be things that turn your world upside down. And while you obviously can't anticipate everything, no one could, mm-hmm. um, you have to have some thought in the back of your mind, what happens to us and how do we respond if X happens? And thinking through yeah. some of those things. I think that's the challenge for a CIO is, gosh, anything could happen tomorrow. You know, our biggest competitor could launch some new idea that requires technology from us we hadn't even looked at. And now all of a sudden they've got you know, six to nine months competitive advantage until we recover. Well, I have to be at least thinking about how do I do that if I am faced with that. So that's, that's the purpose of that vexations chapter is to kind of yeah, it's one of the open the eyes. It's one of the wonderful and interesting things about your book is that it's really going into the leadership, much more leadership than, you know, tech and stuff. And it's really, um, yeah, really deep. So um, that brings up something else. Um, almost sounds like uh yeah he's he's they're, they're changing into the leadership domain and then uh they have to future proof the company yeah so as best they can that's i think that's the challenge for a cio today um and i think one of the challenges the cios face i make this comment in the book they're both the uh the benefic- beneficiary and the besieged warrior of technology um <laughs> Because whenever new technology comes out, depending on their company and their budget, they get to play with it. They get to bring some in and experiment with this, what we call proofs of concept. I can just take two or three people and have them do kind of a little independent project over here with some new tech. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's really fun. Yeah. But also, I've got all my executives who go off to these executive retreats and they hear wonderful ideas and they come back and say, hey, we should do X. Well, that's true. That'd be good to do. Um, we are not positioned to do X either because our current technology just is not compatible with what you just asked for, or we're, we've actually chosen not to go down that path because of some other thing we talked about before and we're, we're looking to do. Yeah. And so I think the, 
the CIO is constantly challenged with keeping that balance going, I think. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think yeah. the leadership is, issue is a much bigger issue for a CIO than it is how smart you are relative to technology. The technology piece, I interviewed over a dozen CIOs for the book. Oh, wow. Um, and I asked them all at some point in the interview um, how important technology was to the success of their strategy. And every one of them said it was pretty insignificant. Um, that the technology piece, yes, you obviously have to guess right. And, and that's not that hard to do. Um, but the harder issues, for many, they thought it was this people thing that I mentioned, how you get people to move in a direction they, don't, they may not want to go. Um, and also just getting the coordination between other executives. Sometimes what marketing wants to do is at odds with what accounting wants to do for cost reasons or whatever. Sometimes what accounting wants to do is at odds with what manufacturing wants to do. Yeah. So you have to, you know, kind of get all these people together um, and get the initiatives aligned so that as many constituencies as possible uh, believe they are benefiting from this strategy. Yeah, I, I always say that project management is 99% people skills and maybe 1% whatever, you know, tech or, or something else. So I, um, maybe a minute ago you said that like the people are the challenge or even the weakness in the organization. So I got to ask you, Edward Snowden, hero or zero? <laughs> yeah, on, on that topic, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt it and say, well, that's more of a political <laughs> answer than, say, a uh, technical question. What I would say regarding Edward Snowden is that cybersecurity is a challenge, I think, for every company. Mm. And how they address it is, is a, um, how do I say this? Cybersecurity is a big challenge for every company. And... In, in my interviews with a couple of really, really smart security specialists, um, they both said the same thing, that the biggest weakness in cybersecurity is not hackers that are out there banging against your business to try to break in, but the biggest weakness is a disgruntled employee uh, yeah. or a careless employee. Yeah. Uh, and so in Snowden's case, where he, he took information uh, that clearly wasn't his and, and shared it with others, um, that's the weakness I think for every company is we had an example here in the U S where there was a disgruntled employee at Tesla Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, Tesla employee didn't get a promotion. If I recall the article, right. Hmm. uh, That he, that he wanted and had done some, uh, you know, cyber sabotage to his own company. Ah, Um, Did you get him? So, well, they know who it was, right. Uh, But that's the risk I think for most companies, the biggest risk Mm -hmm. is that either people are careless and they actually use the word password as their password, something silly like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or they are careless and they click on email attachments from people they don't know yeah. um, because they want to see this new humorous video or something, mm-hmm. uh, which ends up containing some kind of a virus. Yeah. Um, so that's, that seems to be as big of a concern, even now, even with everybody knowing this is a concern, uh, as actual hackers who are breaking mm-hmm. into your system. Uh, so back to the Snowden question, yeah. I'll, leave, I'll leave whether he's a hero or a zero to the historians to decide, uh, <laughs> but he highlights uh, a vulnerability, I think, for every company is we're trusting that our people are conscientious and will not you know, turn over our secrets to competitors or others. Yeah. And whether he's a proper whistleblower or not, uh, the fact is that he took information that wasn't his to take, and, and once he shared it, then he exposed another cybersecurity uh, vulnerability. 
So some say it's not a matter of if, but when you get hacked or your ID gets stolen. Is that even more true today? It sure seems to be. Um, in talking to, um, I wrote a whole chapter on security, and in talking to these um, two security experts, one who was the CEO of a what's called a, an ethical hacking company. Uh, <laughs> ethical hacking is a, are, they hire hackers yeah. to specifically try to break into your system um, mm -hmm. and then do, to do so and then alert you to where you have vulnerabilities. They don't do it to steal things. They do it to show where you're vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and I also talked to a former uh, national security agency, NSA here in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, government agency that does uh, a lot of cyber snooping. Uh, he yeah. was very informative about some of the things they do, too. So I think that the issue of cybersecurity and hacking is a challenge. Both these fellows made it quite clear that, you know, 24 hours a day, there are organizations, organized attempts to break into every uh, secure organization in the world. Yeah. Um, and many of them are not looking to break in specifically to your company. They're just looking to break in anywhere. And once they get in anywhere, then they go snooping around to see what they can find. Yeah. Um, Did you know about the IoT hack or the Internet of Things? There have been a lot of interesting hacks. I'm not particularly sure which one you're referring to. My favorite hack, mm -hmm. uh, the one that scares me the most, was a, and I refer to this in the book, was a fellow who was on a commercial airliner and oh, hacked yeah. in through the entertainment Wi-Fi of the plane and took wow. control of the airplane's flight controls. Do you know how while, he did that? While in flight. Uh, well, they, uh, the, at least in the U.S., the airlines have assured us that that, has, that vulnerability has been identified and corrected. Um, I didn't know but, they were connected. I, I mean, I thought that would be, you know, what do you call it? Hardwired or be behind some, you know, totally not connectable the, well, the you would, with the flight control uh, management. I, I believe that's true now since that <laughs> vulnerability was exposed. But I think there was some... Obviously, some little small loophole or backdoor that this particular fellow found. Um, crazy. And he must have taken a lot of flights to try this time and time again, is my guess. It wouldn't be the first time you'd get on the plane and hit it the first time. He probably took several flights and who knows how many it took for him to find a way into the flight controls. Yeah. And it probably was just trying to see what he could find when he got into the mm -hmm. inner workings of the airplane's Wi-Fi. Probably didn't know he could get into flight controls. Amazing. Um, but what? But once he did, thought, oh, let's see if we can, you know, raise the air, airplane up 10,000 feet. Um, <laughs> Amazing. And he was, a, but he was a pro, right? An expert. He wasn't just playing around. One would think so. I, I can't imagine that just a casual user would, would, first of all, have the software on their computer designed to help them hack. Because it's not just, not just core software that does that. They use sophisticated tools. And in talking to those experts I mentioned earlier, apparently... Uh, in the hacker community, uh, they share their own tools with one another quite frequently. So <laughs> I might have developed something to hack into, I don't know, some particular network, and then I'll post it on where, wherever, wherever hackers go to share their insights. Yeah. And so then you could download it, and then you could try it and play with it. Yeah. And maybe you would take that and enhance it a little bit and find that you could now, using my base, yeah. hack into something else, and you might post a new update. So now we have more places to go find and hack. Yeah, uh, like which is the, apparently how they work that. My favorite one is the low orbit ion cannon. You know that one? I do. 
Yeah, that's a Linux program, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to bore everybody, but <laughs> it's, uh, there's other one. Um, like um, I'm in Germany, and you know, a port scanner is kind of like uh, uh, old hat for hackers. But in Germany, it's illegal to use the program. You know, so you can have it, but you can't use it. Uh, anyway. Well, I would think at any level, um, maybe the act of hacking itself. That probably is illegal, but certainly once you hack in, you uh, it's akin to breaking and entering. Mm -hmm. So I would think in every country they have some some law that that says that this particular activity has to be illegal. And certainly once you take data or manipulate things behind the company's firewall, mm -hmm. certainly that has to there has to be a law broken. I don't care what country you're in. Have you had any direct experiences that you're allowed to talk about? Well, I have one customer. I can't mention their name. Of course. Um, but they had uh, a very sophisticated phishing activity, phishing, which is P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. Um, a hacker had this, I'm, I'm actually familiar with these people personally. A hacker had sent an email to the chief financial officer, mm -hmm. and it looked like they had spoofed the um, uh, headers. So it looked like it had come from the chief executive officer. Mm -hmm. And this fraudulent email to the chief financial officer was instructing her to transfer funds for this particular initiative to this particular account. And because it looked very much like it did come directly from the CEO, the CFO was beginning to make that transaction. Um, and then she decided she better call the CEO just to confirm one more time and found out there was no such official record from the CEO. This had been a hack. Wow. Um, and, whoever the hackers were had spoofed it. So it looked like it was coming internal to the company from someone she would trust to execute some of this kind of a transaction. Thankfully there wasn't any, any funds transferred in their case, hmm. but I mean, one phone call is what the difference was. Uh, had wow. she not called that, you know, they would have transferred quite a bit of money to an account that obviously was directly tied to these hackers and not part of an internal company thing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think email, from what I read, is still the number one way hackers get into companies. They're trying to find ways to get unsuspecting people to click on links, and they do clever things. They make the email look exactly like it came to oh, the yeah. intercompany process. Yeah. Uh, so you, you think you're you think you're clicking a link from a trusted person, mm -hmm. uh, only to find out that you're not. Isn't there a simple way in email, or I don't know if it's Outlook, where you can just right click and see the email signature, and then you see the HTML behind the email or the, I don't know, is there some simple way to see if they tampered well, with the header? I know you can do what you just said, ah. um, but I don't know if the hackers are sophisticated enough where even those headers have been manipulated. Hmm. Um, so, and I think if you think about um, a good sized organization, executives are receiving thousands of emails a day. Yeah. And so, to have the due diligence to click on every header to see if it's who it actually says it was. Well, mm -hmm. yes, that may be helpful. It's probably not practical just given the amount of email people are trying to get through in a given day. Yeah. You know, like, like I said, it's not a question of if, but when I, I messed up myself, I went to um, not per email, but I went to that website where you apply for an ESTA visa. Have you heard of that? Ah, no, but go ahead. 
Europeans that are traveling to America, they can get a, a visa online. It's called an ESTA, and it's only good for a couple months or something. And uh, I had to do that for a family member. And I went to the normal website, what I thought was the normal website, went through the whole process. And at the very end, they wanted like 120 bucks. I'm like, well, wait a minute. This isn't, it was only 10 last time. And then I looked, <laughs> I ended up paying, but I got my money back. I told them, look, you guys aren't the right website. I wanted to go to the U.S. Customs and travel and blah, blah. But, you know, they made the header of the website perfect. Right. And, and here's me, you know, always bragging that I'm never going to get hacked and just fell right into it. And I actually paid. I had to go through their guarantee system and get my money back. And I did get my money back. So I think that's the only reason why these guys are still online because they're like a real business and they're a service that will get the visa for you. Right. And right. so, but they've made their website exactly like the U S treasury or customs, whatever it, it is. So you think you're on the normal ESTA website where it only costs $15. And so then I went back and I went and got it the normal way, but yeah, you know, and I only noticed till I hit the button and it was $125. And, see, not, no, and, and, and what's clever about that is it's an, it's an amount that, while more than you expected to pay, mm -hmm. was not so egregious as to cause you to stop in your tracks. So I'm sure mm -hmm. they collected 125 from lots of people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'm, you know, I got a real reality check, you know, because I thought I was so tech savvy. And there I was just stumbling into it like a 90-year-old, you know. <laughs> anyway. Well, and, and, and to scare you further... The real risk you have in what you did is you may have gotten your money back, but they got your credit card number for you to process that 125. Exactly. Exactly. So who, who knows how else they may use that credit card number? Exactly. So I, I think I'll still report them. I'm going to, or check them out on the, what do you call it? Better Business Bureau or something. Cause right. they're still there. They're, they're actually a company, a registered company. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So it's not a question of if, but when, huh? So. Well, it sure seems to be. I, I look back to the, one of the big hacks we had here in the U.S. was uh, a retailer named Target. Oh, yeah, I remember. Uh, and it was, and it was they, they hacked thousands and thousands of records, millions of records. Mm -hmm. and, the way they, and the way the hackers got into Target mm -hmm. was not through Target, but mm -hmm. one of the uh, heating and air conditioning contractors that Target used mm -hmm. had access inside, their, inside Target's firewall because they were a trusted partner. Well, the hackers found a vulnerability into the HVAC company and hmm. used that access to get to target and then use that to go and um, com uh, commit their fraud. So it was, you know, again, the hackers look around for anybody who's vulnerable. And once they find vulnerability, they look around to see what they can find. And I don't think these hackers were particularly looking for target. They just found a vulnerable partner. And, oh, what do we have here? Oh, these guys have access in the target. Oh, let's go there. Yeah. And that's what they did. Them um, subcontractors. So, exactly. And those <laughs> smaller businesses often don't have very sophisticated, yeah. um, you know, anti-cyber security or cybersecurity protocols. So they, uh, you know, they become vulnerable and then all their partners become vulnerable. It sounds an awful lot like it's impossible. Uh, so getting back to vexations and after your many years of experience, can you even attempt to to uh, predict the unknown unknowns? Well, I think I mean, none of us are accurate fortune tellers. Yeah. Um, but I think we can anticipate certain things. So generally, 
you asked about regulations earlier. I think regulations don't happen overnight. Um, the vote may happen overnight, but there's usually a lot of discussion about them. So we can kind of plan for them. Mm -hmm. um, sophisticated or uh, traumatic weather events, hurricanes, uh, floods, tornadoes, those kind of things. Companies need to be prepared for um, how do we protect ourselves against a flood or against a tornado. And so what kind of a disaster recovery plan do we have in place should this particular facility get destroyed by a weather event or a fire? Um, you know, you, you, a competitor could do something uh, to leapfrog you tomorrow. How do I respond quickly with, with agility? Uh, so I would think, as I mentioned in the book, there you should be able to think about down the road what likely events could hit us without warning and at least have some you know, penciled in plan of, well, if this happens, I have to take the following steps. Um, so at least you've at least thought through the process. So should something traumatic happen, you're prepared. I don't know that you can completely prepare for every unknown. I, I just don't think it's possible. I think you'd, you'd wear yourself out trying to think of every possibility. You'd, you'd turn mm -hmm. into one of those comical conspiracy theorists at that point, mm -hmm. um, worrying about, you know, every bump in the night. Um, I, Remember the really cool quote from your book. I'm probably going to botch it, but um, it's every every data uh, analyst's dream to have an immutable database, and uh, so that brings up Bitcoin and the blockchain technology. Do you have any uh, predictions for that? Well, it sure seems that blockchain is ubiquitous right now. It's gaining a lot of ground. It seems to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but as I understand it, this is one of the vexations I put in, in that particular chapter was sometimes technology conflicts with regulation. As I understand GDPR in Europe and the, the privacy regulations you have there, um, it's required that if I, back to your protest of the, the ESTA uh, visa cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if that data for your 125 is stored in a blockchain database, uh, it's allegedly immutable, meaning it cannot be changed. Well, if I protest that charge, I want that charge removed. Mm -hmm. Now, I could enter a, a, an, a reversing entry, if you will, which is probably how they would do it. Mm -hmm. But there are probably other reasons you'd want to change the data based on GDPR. And so blockchain and GDPR may collide. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of any instances, yet, but I can see a situation where something would come up. Um, Bitcoin is fascinating to me because until cryptocurrency, all currencies in the world um, were based on the creditworthiness of a sovereign government. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the German Deutschmark has its, its relative cost or, or value against the U.S. dollar or the British pound. Um, and as our economy or your economy changes, then the value of our currency to yours changes as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, cryptocurrency is completely separate from any sovereign government. And so it's basically just... Uh, its value is very much like the stock market and it gets controlled by supply and demand. Um, I think it's more like penny stocks, which are more volatile, higher risk, higher return mm -hmm. than say blue chip stocks. Um, but it still behaves much like the stock market, at least in my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't followed cryptocurrencies that much because they're still somewhat of an outlier um, in the medium mm -hmm. of exchange, um, but they are gaining steam. And there are many companies who now accept Bitcoin as payment. Some of the online companies accept Bitcoin as payment. 
Um, yeah, cool, huh? <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because it fluctuates so much. Um, yeah. And there have been some concerns about some either manipulation or hacking mm -hmm. um, that its, it's stability is questioned. It, it goes for periods of time where it seems very stable and then some mm -hmm. event happens and then it seems a little less stable for a while and then it's stable again. Again, back to the kind of stock market volatility point. Yeah, so the, um, I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch because yeah. certainly there are you know people want to say they want to have a currency that is not not um, subject to the whims of politics. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's what they they want it to not be bound by the government. You know, right. Yeah. And I think I think their their pursuit was admirable, and I think they're still working through some of the you know, kind of the, the baby steps of all that. Yeah, I, I could really go into that. I'm, I'm a Bitcoin aficionado, but I'm not going to bore everybody with this right now. So, no, yeah, the thing is, um, a lot would also say the Bitcoin isn't wavering. It's the, it's the dollar that's fluctuating, you know. Uh, but uh, the immut immutability of the blockchain is... Um, Back to your GDPR thing, I think they could do a chess move and say, well, you, can't, you cannot destroy a financial record. That's destruction of evidence. So they could maybe put the GDPR uh, into a stalemate with that, you know, by saying it's a financial thing and you're not allowed to destroy financial records, you know? Well, and I agree. I think there are, there are going to have to be ways for those two to coexist. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're navigating that, but I think, I think when it first started, there was, there was a collision because mm -hmm. I don't think GDPR was as concerned about um, blockchain as yeah. they were just about protecting people's privacy and allowing them basically to erase certain aspects of their existence from the internet um, because they felt that it was, you know, I have data out there about me that is incorrect and I want that to be erased. And I certainly, ended up, you know, here in the U.S., maybe you hear about it over there as well, mm -hmm. lots of concern about Facebook and Google um, mm -hmm. both controlling and somewhat manipulating data um, to, to their whims more than just being completely arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. So as, as people feel that their data has been misrepresented, they're going to want to have some remedy to, to correct that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think GDPR is, a, is an interesting way to, to approach it, certainly one avenue. Yeah. But then the blockchain thing makes it, makes it a, like I said, they're bumping up against each other. And we'll watch how that unfolds over the next few years. GDPR yeah. is not going to be the only uh, regulation that causes blockchain to have some, some hiccups. Hmm. Um, it, it seems to be very strong for many, many things. And mm -hmm. lots of companies are adopting it, which is exciting. Uh, so it'll be just interesting to see how, how uh, all this technology unfolds. Oh, I and love tomorrow these. tomorrow yeah. there'll be some new thing that we haven't heard yeah. of. It'll be the next big thing that'll, you know, like you said, the IoT uh, scenario, yeah. lots of things out there that are going to be exciting going forward. Yeah, you have a whole, well, part of the book about disruptive technologies and you get into Uber and Lyft and uh, a lot of these disruptions, so blockchain disruptive technology. Very. And uh, yeah, but um, like I said, unknown unknowns, future proofing. Uh, really, you can't, right? But you, you just have to manage your downside, manage your risk. I, I just think the I think a CIO has to at least think through, you know, what what could possibly, you know, turn our world upside down. Yeah. And I don't know what all those things could be, but 
regulations are one, certainly. Um, competitors are one. Cybersecurity is, is one. There's a number of things that a, a, a smart CIO would do well to at least think through, okay, I'll, take, I'll try to pick 10 things that could disrupt us and at least lay out five or six actions should one of those happen so that I'm not caught completely flat-footed if it does happen. Yeah. Um, and that's IT strategy, right? The name of your book. That's, a, that's right, <laughs> IT strategy. Excellent. So, yeah, let's see. Well, we talked about Bitcoin and blockchain. And, okay, um, let's get back to, I don't know, more matrix stuff like virtual reality and augmented reality. What do you think about them? Well, I think like so many technologies, they have both a wonderfully great potential and a wonderfully frightening potential. Because <laughs> um, I think like all technology has the potential to do great and, and, and to do harm. You know, you take the internet as a great example. Civil users uh, use it to be more productive, to learn more. It's, it's excellent for those of us who are um, rational and civil adults. But that same tool is used by cyber criminals to do horrible things and, and used by sexual predators to do horrible things. So the technology is neither good nor bad. Um, mm -hmm. How people employ it is what becomes good or bad. I think there's a lot of exciting stuff with virtual reality and augmented reality, certainly in, in, the, in the world of healthcare. There's a lot of exciting things people are doing um, to help uh, like uh, amputees do, do things with virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, so I think there's a lot of exciting exciting opportunities um, for that space. Um, I can't help but ask, but do you have any hot stock tips? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm merely a casual investor. Um, <laughs> so I don't have anything, anything clever to say. Um, okay. But I, I think it's fun to watch um, as technologies happen. Um, I think the most exciting opportunities typically are in very small companies that aren't publicly traded. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fun to watch who gets acquired by larger companies. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the big software companies gobble up smaller, very niche players in mm -hmm. interesting little markets um, to see. And then you watch how that unfolds in their portfolio over time. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not really a stock tip as much. I do like to see who, who acquires whom and yeah. why did they think that was a good purchase for this little unknown company that no one, well, very few have heard of. And now all of a sudden they're, they're the next new, new thing. Mm -hmm. um, in technology. I think that's why the owner, or I, I don't know if it was Chickafield, but it was a chicken company. The owner, the dad told his family, never go public. Now, I don't know if it's a good idea or not, but to never go public, you know, no, never IPO, you know? Well, I think it's, you look at a company like Dell here in the U S they've been mm -hmm. public, they've gone mm -hmm. private. They go back to being public. They go back to being private. You can do um, that. Yes, you can. Oh, because hmm. what going private basically means that let's say you and I have enough money, we can buy up all the stock of that oh, company. Yeah. So yeah. now we take it off the stock market and we, we bought it ourselves. Hmm. Um, and then three or four years from now, we think, boy, the value of this company we bought has grown so much. We could now go public again and cash out and get our money back plus a great reward. Hmm. And then five years from now, two other guys who are really rich could say, hey, let's buy that company and take it private. Um, and so while it's, you know, a company the size of Dell isn't two guys who do it, but, you know, a few investment firms pool their funds together and uh, take the companies private. And, and so they do go back and forth. Hmm. Some never, never change. Either they're always private or they're generally always public. 
But there are others, particularly in the tech space, it seems, who, you know, go back and forth um, to uh, hopefully for their, for their investors maximize their investment. So how's the CIO supposed to handle that? I think it's just another thing they have to deal with. Um, <laughs> whether I'm public or private really doesn't affect the CIO that much hmm. um, because I, ha I have to help enable the business, help them sell more, help them optimize their assets, help them cut their costs, those kind of things. Um, and so I think one of the things that, one of the reasons companies like to go private if they're public is at least here in the US, you have to report to the Securities and Exchange Commission every 90 days. And you have to subject yourself to investors who demand certain performance. And if you go private, you don't have to deal with those outside investors, just the handful of companies that bought you. Um, now they, they're the ones who care about what your performance is, but the rest of us on the outside never get to peek behind the curtain and ask those questions. Yeah. And so for the CIO, I don't think it changes that much. Um, yeah, that's a lot of regulation and a lot of reporting to do. And a lot well, it of is. And, and yeah, exactly right. And plus, I think when you're a public company in the U.S. anyway, the investors want to see, you know, some progress on some measurement every 90 days. And so if you are looking at five-year plans of how we're going to transform our own manufacturing business, I don't want to be reporting on what I'm doing every 90 days. It's a, it's a pain in the neck. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd like I'd like to not have that scrutiny over me while mm -hmm. I complete this grand initiative. Mm -hmm. So maybe going private makes the most sense so that I can just focus on this initiative over mm -hmm. the proper time without having to report on these aspects every 90 days. Yeah, that's um, waste. It's, yeah. it's 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 a lot to do, but the value of being public is you have access to that great pool of investors. Yeah. And so you you know, if if you are a company needing investment, you make stock available to them so that you can build that new factory. So there's yeah. pros and cons, certainly. Yeah. So I'm, I know I'm not going to do your book justice in this short time, but um, let's get back to your book then. What, what got you started in writing? I think I'm a teacher at heart. Hmm. And I think I have uh, the ability, not uniquely to me, but I have the ability to make complex things simple. And so the reason I wrote this book and why I do writing is I see a challenge like with IT strategy. I have a lot of clients who have said, we need a strategy. We don't know where to start. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought about that a lot and I thought, well, I, I can put together a framework. And so I noodled around with a bunch of ideas and came up with what ended up being uh, my, my three dimensional cube that I have in the book. Um, I saw that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and, it, and the whole and basically the whole book and all of IT strategy, in my view, is contained in that one diagram. And so I can just kind of look at that and go, okay, these are the things I have to address to mm -hmm. build a, a, a comprehensive IT strategy. Um, and so I think why I write is I'm I firmly believe it's easier to edit somebody else's work than it is to start with a blank whiteboard or a blank sheet of paper. And so I'll do the hard work of taking that blank sheet of paper and putting something on it for others to look at and edit. So people may look at my strategy and go, oh, that's not how I would do it. Okay, great. Well, I've now given you a starting point. Mm -hmm. So if you look at my book and you say, oh, I would have added this and I wouldn't have had that, that's fine. I'm not offended. I'm trying to give somebody a place to start to look at IT strategy. And hopefully what they look at in my book and particularly in that that 3D cube diagram 
is starts their own creative juices flowing either to fill in the boxes that I put there for them or to move the boxes around, add new ones, take mine out, um, all of which helps them build their IT strategy. And so that's, my, that's why I write is I want to do the hard work to say I'll give you some place to start and I'm not particularly offended if you take my ideas and chop them apart. Good for you. <laughs> Well, I agree. It's a, it's a benchmark. I th- I've never seen anything like it. Has anybody written an IT a book like this yet? Well, I think a number of people and certainly consulting firms have either published white papers or put together books on IT strategy. But oftentimes they focus heavily on the technological pieces yeah. um, and the integration of technologies. And that's, that's certainly important. Hmm. But it's just one piece of this broader puzzle. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's what people have missed, at least in my view. What they've missed is this comprehensive look at it. Um, I, I hope we'll, well, we'll invent a time machine and 100 years from now, you will see students <laughs> looking at this book, you know. I, I really think it has potential to, to you know, it is, I think it's the benchmark. But, uh, well, well we'll need a time machine to figure, you know, to really see, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, anyway, yeah, it's an awesome, awesome book. So... Did I ask you, uh, do you have any cryptocurrency? Uh, you asked me that. I didn't answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just trying to get you. <laughs> okay. So after this, after this book, I mean, what's, what's next? What's on the horizon for you? Um, well, I'm interested, I'm interested to see how this book, how, how it's received in the marketplace. Um, and so, uh, like I said, it was, bestseller in July, which is great. Um, and you've interviewed a lot of other authors. Books have a long tail. Mm-hmm. Um, if you market them, they have a, a big spike when you ra- launch your campaigns and then it tails off and there's a long tail uh, following. And there's all kinds of um, supplemental or complementary things that happen when you have a book. Um, so podcasts like this, people call you and say, hey, can I interview you? Um, I've been invited to speak at a couple of industry conferences on pieces of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested to see how this plays out. Um, yeah. Is there another book coming? Probably. I don't have one that I'm saying, good, now that that's done, I can start on this one. Um, but I think there are, I, 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 like to, I like to write. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there's another book or two in me, but there's not one on the horizon at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've got a couple grab bag questions for you, but before I get to them, I wanted to ask you, uh, because it's such a deep book, uh, did I miss anything? Is there anything else you want to say about the book? Well, I think the book is aimed at uh, CIOs and those who aspire to be CIOs. Yeah. Uh, And I wanted to give them something to start with, uh, to take that blank sheet of paper and give them something to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as I mentioned in the book, each of those, those big chapters in the center, like data and technology and security and so forth, there are whole consulting firms built around those. So, you know, I may give each topic 20 or 30 pages. That's just to give the reader some sense of you should be thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. Is it the, is it the, you know, exhaustive uh, examination of a topic? Of course not. Uh, but I want them to think these are the topics you should be thinking about as you build your IT strategy, as you lay it out. Um, yeah. So, I hope that readers read the book and I hope they take what I've put forth and tweak it for themselves. Like I said, I'm not offended if someone says, I don't like this piece, I would replace it with that. Well, good for you. 
Yeah. Um, that's my point is I want to give you something to start with. So you're not just scratching your head, looking at a blank whiteboard. That's like almost like foundations, IT foundations. Really I good. think it is. That's the, pur that's the purpose of it is to say, these are, these are core things to consider. Um, mm. And, and hopefully, hopefully people will see it that way and it'll uh, receive a, uh, an eager <laughs> audience. Okay. So you are a super high level IT dude, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I heard in Texas, you're not supposed to say dude. Is that correct? Um, people still say it here. So okay. um, All right. if, if we're supposed to stop, I haven't been told. Okay. Um, okay. So super technical question. What's in your pockets right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably car keys and some change, I guess. <laughs> okay. You guess. You don't know what's in your pockets? Well, right now my pockets are empty. So if, if oh, okay. any given moment you were to ask me, that's probably what's in there. Okay. One of my, my favorite questions is if, if you could eat dinner with anyone, past, present, or future, who would it be? The one person I'd like to have dinner with would be, uh, in the New Testament, is the Apostle Andrew. Uh -huh. He's mentioned a few times, and only as someone who brings people to Jesus. And so I wonder, well, gee, why does he get such an audience that when he brings someone, they're readily received? If no, it's not, it's not clear. And so I know that's an obscure reference, but um, I always, as I've read that, I thought, that's, wonder what, what was in his personality that made him, made it so accessible uh, for others and for him. So that would probably be on my short list. Interesting. Einstein said something about that. Man, I'm going to botch this quote too, but he said something. There's <laughs> the only thing, uh, the most perfect uh, something is mystery, right? Uh, you know what? I, I will stop there. I will, I will get it and put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Einstein had this really cool quote about mystery. So it's a mystery about how Andrew did that. It is to me. Obviously, there's a lot. There's a lot of backstory that we're not that's not shared with us. But um, yeah, that'd be fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a morning routine, or do you uh, recommend one for CIOs? I think each person has to work that out for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Because I I travel a lot uh, with different customers, and my schedule is somewhat unpredictable. Um, other than obviously getting up, showering, having breakfast. Um, the other parts of the morning routine certainly vary from week to week. So I don't have a particular predictable uh, routine. <laughs> okay. Sometimes people have some funky ones. It's always interesting to hear. And you know, it's really trendy, all of these, the big CIOs and everybody's talking about morning routines, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So where, where can we find you online? Where do you want the people to go? So my personal website is commonsensestrategy.com. Okay. Is your book on sale right now is, or yes. the launch is over? Oh, it is? Yeah, the book, both books are available from Amazon and both books are available in paperback and Kindle. Oh, okay. But there's no uh, price reduction right now. No, that promotion ran its course with the marketing campaign. Ah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm a little late, but I got in there through for Paul you. Brody just in time to get it for free. So thanks you very much, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, like said, I'm going to have to reserve you for another podcast because I think your book is a foundation and we can go really deep on a lot of things in there. And if you don't mind, I'd like to reserve you for a future podcast. I'd be open to that. Okay. Just one more time. Where do you want people to reach you? 
commonsensestrategy.com. Thanks, Jim. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been really fun. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Well, thanks, Eric. It's been a joy for me as well. All right. See you next time. <laughs> Bye now. Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, then remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upvote this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.